all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle one, the package is being delivered. Hello out there on the internet, I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber the Atom. For a few brief years in the middle of the 20th century, America and the world was cowed by the awesome possibility and terrifying reality of nuclear energy. Nuclear power had the potential to revolutionize the world, but nuclear bombs could destroy it. But still, for a brief moment, it seemed like nuclear energy would save the world. Then came Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and the China Syndrome, America fell out of love with nuclear energy. That might be changing. Climate change and scientific advances might just be the shot in the arm the flagging nuclear energy industry needs, but did the dangers go away? That's the subject of the excellent podcast, Wild Thing. Its third season is all about the shifting landscape of nuclear energy. It's comprehensive, excellent, and it's produced and hosted by former NPR editor Laura Krantz, and she is here with us today. Laura, thank you so much for coming on to Cyber to talk about nuclear energy with me. Thank you for having me on. All right, so this season of Wild Things starts with a pretty interesting anecdote, and it was one uh, that I, as a nuke nerd, have only barely heard about. Can you tell me about the SL-1 disaster? Yeah, this is really kind of a fascinating story, partially because so few people know about it, even some of like the nuke nerds that I do know. So in 1961... The Army was running an experimental nuclear reactor, boiling water reactor, out at the Idaho National Laboratory, which at the time was the National Reactor Testing Station. And right before Christmas, they had shut this reactor down for maintenance. And then on January 3rd, this group of three military guys, pretty young, uh, a little bit of, of experience, but not a lot, with no supervision, were tasked with starting the reactor up on the swing shift, so between 4 p.m. and midnight. And... As they started the reactor up, something went wrong and it went super critical and blew up. And this explosion killed all three men and scattered radioactivity. Thankfully, the the building that the thing was in held to some degree. But, you know, there were all these rescue personnel that were exposed. There was this massive cleanup effort that continued on for decades as we sort of changed our levels of acceptance for what, you know, our, our tolerances for radioactivity in the soil and, and in these kinds of areas. And this happened 45 miles from where I had grown up, granted, a few years before I was born. But I didn't hear about it till I was an adult. And this is still the deadliest nuclear reactor accident in American history. So it's it's really fascinating especially since so people so many people don't know about it. Yeah, and it it's it really strikes me as interesting especially right now because Netflix has this 3 Mile Island documentary that just started airing. Um and again, not nearly as deadly as SL1, but for some reason that sticks in the cultural consciousness and SL1 just didn't. Why do you think one had an impact and one kind of is is forgotten? I think there are a couple of reasons. Actually, there are probably more than two, but off the top of my head, first of all, this was an experimental reactor in the middle of the Idaho desert. Idaho was not very populated at the time. Um, and, you know, it's kind of out in the hinterlands. Most people didn't, it didn't po- didn't seem like that much of a threat because it was so isolated in many ways. Second, it was 1961. This is the height of the Cold War. Gary Powers had just been shot down. 
um, fairly recently, like just the, the October previously, I believe. And, you know, people were very much concerned with or they, they understood the need for security. They understood the need for secrecy. They understood the need for um, this kind of technology and that we didn't want the Soviets to be ahead of us on stuff. And so there was, and, and there was a level of trust in the government as well. Uh, this is pre-Watergate. This is pre-Vietnam. This is, you know, not that far after World War II, the good war. And so I think people, you know, they took it at face value. The government said, this is what happened. Um, a lot of the information was published in the paper and people just thought, okay, yeah, you know, this is the price of progress. And I think the third thing there is it's also the military. And so because it wasn't necessarily a civilian reactor, the assumption is, is like the military takes certain risks that perhaps we might not have accepted from a civilian accident, but, um, that's a little bit more speculative, but I think the first two reasons are, are some of the big ones. Well, the deaths were soldiers, right? Yes, exactly. Like, I think that that's in like three mile Island threatened a, uh, community, a community. Exactly. Yeah. It was in the middle of middle, you know, it was in, it was in Pennsylvania. It was on the Eastern seaboard. It was in a place where there are a lot of people. So it, it felt a little more scary. Well, and it also came at a time when attitudes towards both, as you just said, the American government and nuclear energy in general were, very different than they were in 1961, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was a lot, the trust had gone away uh, to some degree because of some of these other incidents and, you know, in terms of, of Watergate, in terms of Vietnam, uh, in terms of civil rights stuff. Um, there was also, I think, you know, the thing that's kind of interesting about nuclear is we really only started playing around with it with reactors in the 1940s. And 30 years later, that's not that long a time period. We're still learning stuff. We're still figuring it out. And so some of the questions that people had about like, what's going on here? What do I need to be worried about? They didn't necessarily have answers for those questions, but rather than say, hey, you know, we're figuring this out. There was sort of like dodging, which I think only added to that feeling of like, you know, who's driving this boat? So um, I think that was was part of it as well. But where are we, when you look at the landscape now, things have changed so radically even since the 1970s in terms of nuclear energy. Um, what does the landscape look like broadly now? Are people pro? Are they anti? What's going on? I know it's a big I, question. Yeah, it is. I think it's there's a, there's a shift because it's been anti for a very long time. But I think climate change has raised this specter of, you know, annihilation, nuclear annihilation seems almost quaint in some ways compared to uh, being wiped out by climate change. So I think that there is some shift in that direction. I think, too, you've got a generation of people who have are growing up not in the Cold War, although I would say that maybe there's been a little resurgence of that lately, but uh, you know, on the whole, you haven't had people who are as color, whose childhoods are as colored by um, fears of the bomb, fears of nuclear annihilation, things like that. So I think that might be part of the shift. And also we're better at the technology than we were. Like we understand it better. We're designing reactors in a way that we weren't doing it in the past. We've learned from a lot of these mistakes. And I think that that is contributing to this shift towards the idea that nuclear energy might be an answer. Now, there's still a lot of people who are absolutely not. This is a terrible idea. It's, you know, what about the health? What about the waste? What about 
um, say, I don't know, the Russian military targeting Chernobyl or another nuclear power plant in the other one in Ukraine. I'm forgetting what the name of it is right now. But um, that element is one of those things that still kind of raises questions about if we're responsible enough to handle this stuff, because even if the technology has improved, human nature is human nature. and We are we are who we are. Let's run through some of those concerns then, because I'm curious yeah. about them. What about, let's start with waste. Mm-hmm. What do we do with the waste? And how much, have we yeah. gotten better at cutting down the amount that's produced, or is that even possible? So I'm going to answer your second question first. Uh, in terms of cutting it down, I think we're a little bit more efficient with fuel use. And I'm, you know, I'm not an expert on this aspect of it, but I know one of the big things that would cut down on the amount of waste would be if we could actually... Uh, go back and and uh, reuse, recycle this fuel, and we are not doing that because it's something of a political hot potato. You know, there's all these byproducts that are extremely radioactively hot that come from reprocessing. Um, so instead of going back in, I think the number I heard was that after the fuel is spent. of the uranium remains. So you could go back in, reprocess it, get that uranium out and use it again. But there are so many bright byproducts in that processing element, uh, that processing aspect that we don't do it because we're afraid of dirty bombs. Um, We're afraid of like these extremely radioactive materials. So politically, we don't do that anymore, um, at least on the civilian side of things. I think the military may do some reprocessing. So that leads leaves us, if we get more reactors, we will have more waste because we are not reprocessing stuff. Um, to your first question about, are we better with it? We're kind of the same as we were. I mean, we haven't really come up with a good solution to this. There was legislation, legislation that's a tough word, legislation, <laughs> that was passed in the 80s that said they would have a two repositories for nuclear waste. Then that was cut down to one. That was designated as Yucca Mountain. Yucca Mountain was shut down. We haven't really found anywhere else to put this stuff. And so there's that that question remains unanswered. There have been a few communities that have raised their hand and said, yes, we'll take it. But then the state governments come in and shut it down and say, no, we're not taking it. And so right now, everything's just kind of sitting on the surface near in storage casks. You know, they're, they're, it's perfectly safe. You can walk up to a storage cask cast, put your hand on it. You're not going to get any sort of, um, you know, you're not going to be irradiated, but it's just sitting there and we don't know where we're going to put it. And long-term that doesn't seem like the best solution. And the, you know, the exam, one of the big examples of this is like San Onofre in uh, California, because that spent fuel is sitting there right now. And that's California and it's near the ocean and it's earthquake country. And that does not seem like the place where you necessarily want to leave this stuff, but I don't know if the solution is just going to be one repository, it may be that we will have a few of them scattered around the country uh, and the, it will end up in places like that. But we don't have a solution for it yet, even though we are actively seeking one. So I just want to know, talk about how far the tech has advanced uh, in the last few decades, because I think it, I've always been kind of fascinated by nuclear energy because on a very, very, very basic level, it is still just um, heating up water to make steam, to make mm-hmm. turbines spin. Obviously that's radically simplifying what's going on. Uh, but you know, how do, how is the technology changed recently? I mean, we hear about a lot about modular reactors and small reactors. What does all this stuff mean? 
So there are a lot of new reactor technologies coming out, and I can't speak to the specifics of them. I know that in terms of what's happening with new scale, which is the small modular reactor that's on track to potentially start producing power in 2029, 2030, um, these modular reactors are, everything is being constructed in a factory. So it's more along the lines of like Boeing or Ford, like you're doing everything in a factory, everything is meeting certain specifications. And then depending on the power needs of the community, they can get, you know, four reactors or six reactors or eight reactors or 12, and they can add or subtract as needed. And the idea is that you've got some flexibility in terms of power. Um, I think that this is still using fairly old, not old technology. Um, well, yeah, it's kind of old. It's it's stuff that has, I believe it's a boiling water reactor and I would have to double check that. So don't quote me on it, but I believe it's using a lot of that same technology from that we, that has already passed through the department of energy um, in terms of like, you know, jumping through the hoops and checking the boxes. The design I think is the bigger question at this point, but there are tons of other small reactors and different types of reactors that are being developed too. There's like, uh, let's see, molten salt and lead cooled and micro reactors, which would be the kind of thing that you could use to power a military base or, you know, potentially if there was a disaster somewhere, you could take it to a place like, you know, New Orleans after Katrina and use it to power hospitals. Um, There are, um, I know there are others. I just, I don't know them all specifically. So Um, But the one thing about the new scale one that I found really interesting is all of the reactors up to this point have been bespoke, like they're built on site by the contractor using different materials, different setups, different layouts, um, you know, whatever the technology is at the time. And so if something breaks on one, it's not like it's an, an, it's just, it's not like you can move from one reactor to the next and know exactly what you need to be doing. Whereas the idea behind new scale is that all of these reactors will be the same. And if there is a problem on one, you'll know how to fix it. You'll know how to fix it on all of them. So I thought that was actually kind of interesting. I didn't realize quite how specialized all these reactors had been. Well, I mean, it's because we don't build a lot of them really. Right. right? Mm -hmm. And they're expensive and they're huge. Yeah, I live in uh, I live in South Carolina. Oh, so yeah, yeah. you're in the yeah, interesting times there between the one in your state and then the one and the Vogel one in Georgia. Yeah, can you um, can you tell the audience why? Like, what is interesting about the one in Georgia and the one in South? I mean, there's lots of things that are interesting. Yeah, about these nuclear I'm- power plants. I'm less familiar with South Carolina, um, but the words on time and on budget do not apply to any of the reactors that are currently being built. I think Vogel is now twice as expensive as was originally budgeted and is now six years delayed, uh, maybe even longer. And it's still a sort of no end in sight. And I believe what they were doing was simply adding to an existing reactor uh, in terms of putting in more cooling towers. And I mean, this is huge. This is sort of like a legacy project in many ways based on, you know, it's sort of more of like a 70s style, 80s style reactor. It's definitely not this this newer, smaller technology that's being pushed forth by company companies in Oklo and places like that. But the Georgia one is constantly being held up as this case study of why nuclear reactors are a bad idea because they're expensive, because they are slow, 
And it's extremely difficult to get these projects in all of the hoops and up and running. All right, we're going to pause there for a break, cyber listeners. We will be right back after these messages from our sponsors. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, cyber listeners, thank you for sticking with us. We are talking with Laura Krantz about nuclear energy, why we don't have more of it. Can it solve climate change? It's complicated. It's complicated, and it's also expensive. We were just talking before the break about how expensive these things are. Like I said, I live in South Carolina. Um, I believe the intercept headline on our nuclear power plant fiasco was uh, something like South Carolina spent $9 billion to dig a hole in the ground and then fill it back in. Uh, which is a reduction, but it's apt. <laughs> so why is this stuff so expensive and so time-consuming? I think one of the biggest things is regulation. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a little bit double-edged because on one hand, you don't want to go into a situation where there's no regulation because this stuff does have the potential to be very, very dangerous and problematic. But on the other hand, as you know, I spoke to Ted Nordhaus, who is the founder of the Breakthrough Institute, which is a think tank that deals a lot with environmental environmental problems and solutions. And he is an advocate for nuclear. He says, you know, the reaction of the nuclear energy industry is one of the few industries that's regulated to the point of zero risk. Um, we don't do that with coal. We don't do that with oil. We don't do that with a lot of other industries. And if you are regulating that much, and if there are so many boxes you have to check and so many hoops you have to jump through, uh, and there's no tolerance for any problems, then it's just cost will go up because of that. It's just sort of guaranteed. Um, and you know, that means that, and these regulations are applied across the board this is to materials that are being used to construct the reactor. This is materials that are being used within the inside the reactor. This is for the people who are going to be working there. So that I think adds a tremendous amount of cost. Um, I would imagine that construction in general is not cheap right now. So that's probably not helping things. And then, you know, the longer these projects go on, the the more they balloon, that's just kind of the the general standard. If you go over budget, or I'm sorry, if you go over time, it's guaranteed you're going to be going over budget. And these are the, it's, it's also interesting because these are projects that all have very long, they have a very long time until they become profitable in some way, right? Even after the construction is actually finished, correct? Right. Like it takes a decade for it to pay itself off usually somewhere around there. Right. Yeah. Sometimes even longer. I think they said with Georgia, it might even be 20 years before it pays itself off, which if you're a rate payer, uh, you're not too keen on that. Like you want to be 
paid or you want to know that the, the money is, is coming back into the system rather than just sort of like trying to pay off the expenditures of, of putting this thing together. So what is, do, what is the argument here that nuclear energy will help us become carbon neutral? Yeah, this is the, the idea here is that nuclear energy does not put out greenhouse gases in the same way that coal, natural gas, and oil do. Um, you don't have to worry about, you know, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide. You don't have to worry about sulfur dioxide. You don't have to worry about all these things that are polluting the atmosphere. Um, this kind of energy burns very, very cheaply. Or I'm sorry, very, very cleanly, not cheaply. Um, and it is one of the things that I learned when I was at the Idaho National Laboratory is, you know, we seem there's a there's a lot of arguments for why solar and wind should be this source for renewable energy rather than nuclear and i i understand those arguments i can see their point of view but as more and more people are demanding energy and they are moving away from oil and gas and they are moving to electricity and especially in terms of electric cars you need to be able to ramp up the amount of power that is on the grid that is not from coal and is not from oil. And especially with electric cars at, you know, those are generally going to be charging at night. So you've got to have something that's providing, you know, stable base, um, base power that wind and solar can't necessarily provide until we get our battery technology better. So I think the way a lot of people see this is it's something of a bridge technology as well. Like, yes, ideally we would get to all wind or all solar or all hydroelectric, although even those have their own drawbacks too. Like I'm not saying that those are perfect energy sources, um, but to get there now as quickly as we need it is not going to be possible. So what can we use instead that will get us to that point? And I think this is part of the idea behind the Biden administration's decision to uh, you know, throw $6 billion at the nuclear industry to try and keep some of these flagging and, you know, soon to be retired nuclear reactors alive so that they can provide that power. Because we're at the point now that if those are pulled off, uh, pulled offline or completely retired, the way that those energy demands will be filled in is going to be with coal and, and gas and not with uh, renewables in many cases. Yeah, the most recent example I can think of is the one in California that's on the it's like really striking looking. It's on the edge of the that's on the cliff. Diablo um, Canyon. Diablo Canyon. Yeah, they were going yeah. to retire it, and then they just decided not to. Right? I think they pulled back on that. Did they? I didn't know. I know it's been up for discussion. I don't know if they had made it reached a final decision. But California is interesting because you know this is. I think this is their last plant that they were planning to retire, but they don't have the renewable energy resources in place to sort of take over for that. So they would have had to be going more to um, natural gas, um, which that sort of defeats the purpose. California is interesting, though, too, because they've also passed a law that says no more nuclear reactors can be built until the federal government creates that repository. So, you know, kind of round and round and round we go on this stuff. Yeah, it's fascinating because you, you have all these places where eventually someone has to give yeah. somewhere, right? Because the, the nuclear waste is being produced. It has to go somewhere. And right now, I think there's like um, – I think in Maine, there is a fenced-in kind of lot that is guarded by armed guards that's just – kind of this nondescript parking lot that has nuclear waste barrels in it that has nowhere to go. Yeah. Right? 
That sounds about right. And that's, I think then there's like a hundred sites there. One, there's one of those at every single reactor site around the country. So somewhere between 70 and a hundred, um, just kind of scattered around. Why do you think we're so, do we, how do we get to this point where we are so afraid of this stuff still after all this time? Ooh, um, I think that really goes back to world war II because most Americans understanding of nuclear and, you know, atomic energy didn't really exist until we dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And all of a sudden you see what nuclear does and that sort of struck fear into the hearts of a lot of people. And then you follow that up with the cold war. So the, and nuclear energy and nuclear war it's kind of hard to separate those two because the genesis for both is at, it's the same point and you know the very 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 most basic science behind what's happening in a nuclear bomb versus what's happening in a reactor is the same you know you're fissioning atoms and you're releasing energy and depending on how fast you do that will give you two different very two very different outcomes and so I think that this this sort of visceral fear has kind of been tied up in nuclear energy, even though they are not the same thing. Uh, but it's very hard for people to separate that stuff out. The other thing is is the you know the the long life nature of the byproducts and the waste, which is you know there's no denying it's it's around for a very long time, and the concerns over it getting into the soil getting it into the air we breathe, getting it into food, getting it into um, water. Like those are legitimate concerns. Granted, we are exposed to radioactivity on a daily basis all the time as part of living on earth. Like that's been part of life here since time immemorial. Um, But this stuff sort of adds to that and it can do some pretty nasty things in high doses. And also we as humans have evolved with a sense of kind of a, you know, a a fear of contamination, which is very much what this is like a sort of innate reaction to the idea of contamination. And this is what this stuff can do. So I think some of this is very sort of deeply psychologically and evolutionarily rooted. Yeah. And I I find the, I find it fascinating because there was, it was a very brief period after those bombs dropped, maybe, maybe 10 years um, where, we were afraid of it, but we were also enchanted by its possibility. You know, they were people were people were sitting on rooftops in Vegas and watching the tests. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were watching the tests and they were talking about all the things we were going to do with the atom. And then all of that stuff started to kind of fade away. And I'm thinking I, I would put in my own brain, I think I would put it in I would put it to the moment that the Soviet Union Got it? Like, you know, that's the moment where when America wasn't completely in control of this new technology is when we started to really, the fear started to overcome the hope, I think. I you know, and I'm just talking out my ass here a little bit, but it just, <laughs> that that's kind of what it feels like to me as someone who is, is focused a little bit on the pop culture side of this. Yeah. Um, tell me about, you talked to a lot of environmental activists, people that are concerned about this contamination, what are their, and you know, like we have to remember again, speaking of Las Vegas and Nevada, that the legacy of nuclear contamination tied to America's tests, both in the Pacific and in the American Southwest is still felt today. 
people mm-hmm. families are still still dealing with it today mm-hmm. um so can you kind of give me that side of the argument like what what's the pushback here yeah you know we were kind of played fast and loose with a lot of those tests in the 50s and 60s and you know we and and i think this also contributes to people's wariness about nuclear energy is it's, you know, the government would be like, oh yeah, we're going to set these off. Everything's going to be fine. There's nothing to see, nothing to worry about here. And then it turns out that people who were downwind of this stuff, there were elevated levels of cancer. There were elevated levels of, of uh, you know, other diseases that can be affiliated with uh, exposure to radiation. And so that first off, you know, it's, it's sure the government says it's going to be safe, but can we actually trust them? So there's that element of it because there's not a good history there. Um, the flip side of this that's kind of interesting, though, too, is it's like a lot of these things don't come on for 20, 30 years. And the you, just because you have been exposed to radiation is not a guarantee that anything will happen. And just because you have been exposed to radiation doesn't guarantee that that was the cause of what has happened to you. Um, for instance, you know, the example that I have heard multiple times from people is I live, you know, and, and this works for me too, is I live in Denver. I'm on the Colorado plateau. There is a lot of uranium in the soil here. There is radon. There is all kinds of radioactive materials. I'm also at a higher altitude. And so I am getting a lot more cosmic radiation. And so is my, if I were to come count down with cancer, excuse me, cancer in 20 years, is that caused by the exposure to the radiation? that is, you know, say in Rocky Flats, or is that because of the environment that I live in? So that has raised a lot of questions about, you know, where where do you place the blame? How do you figure out where this stuff is coming from? But to your point about the health, I think of all the things that the government was not clear on, and partially because I don't think they knew the answers to it, is what will this, what effect does this have on your health? And I think that that is a much more complicated question than anybody has been really able to answer. Um, There's sort of two schools of thought that I came across. One is this linear no threshold, which is that any exposure above background is bad, like don't do it. And then there is another school that's, you know, very much permissible dose. There's a, you can get a certain amount of radiation up to a point and then past that point is the point of no return. And they're still trying to figure out you know, which of those is right. And there, there's no real clear answer on that. One of the other interesting things I found is they were doing studies on microbes back in 2018, I think they were taking them deep underground where there wasn't background radiation to see what would happen with them if they would do better because they weren't being exposed to radiation. And it turns out they did worse uh, because radiation is sort of woven into the fabric of evolution and life on earth. So there, you know, microbes, that's a long way from, you know, mammals, humans, anything with a backbone. Um, but it raises questions about, you know, is, is there an amount of radiation that we might even consider essential, which then just throws another level of complication into this conversation about figuring out like how much is too much, um, and how do you protect people from it? But it, you know, at, at what level do you need to protect them from it? So it sounds like this is one of those situations where there's just a lot of unknowns. Yeah. I was actually surprised at how many questions still remain. Um, And that was actually one of the reasons that this ended up being the topic for the podcast, because, you know, the first season was about Bigfoot. The second season is about the search for extraterrestrial life. And again, it's one of those things where like, 
we have a lot of questions and you would think the answers would be very black and white, but in fact, there's a lot of like gray area and it's a lot about like human tolerance for risk and human nature and all of these, these things that are less concrete and less scientific that play into these. So how many, how many episodes are there this season and what all are you getting into? So there will be nine episodes this season. Um, and we'll be, I'll be talking about some of the stuff that we've just talked about in terms of the health and in terms of waste. Um, I get into the history quite a bit. Uh, the other thing that I spend a little bit of time on is, you know, what is an atom? I come to this, <laughs> I come to this topic as someone who has a background in history and international relations. And I did not do well in high school physics and I never took chemistry. So for me, it was sort of like, I have to learn how this stuff works so I can explain it to an audience. And there, I will admit to shedding some tears over trying to figure out some of the nuclear science stuff. I was like, I don't get this. Um, but I ended up finding some really great professors at various universities who were used to explaining it to the non-science majors and could really help me walk through it and understand what was going on and how we figured this out and how we cracked it open. And um, so there'll be some 101 stuff. So some of your more uh, science-minded listeners may want to you know, maybe it'll be a good refresher for them or they can listen to it with their kids and get their kids hooked on atoms. And when does the first episode drop? It'll be out on May 17th. And it's going to be everywhere, wherever fine pods are casted. Yeah. Wherever fine pods are casted, uh, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, pretty much you name it. You'll, you should be able to find it. And if you don't, um, write and request it. Laura Krantz, thank you so much for coming on to Cyber and walking us through this. The show is Wild Thing. The first episode drops on May 17th. I'm very much looking forward to it. I've listened to the first one. Uh, I can't wait to see where else it goes. Thanks again for having me on. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.